The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Many of you, if you've not been in our Roots Seminar, may not realize that we are affiliated with the Evangelical Free Church of America, which is a national group. And there's probably 12, 1,300 free churches across the United States. In the southeast, we are the planting pioneer part of the Free Church. It's a Scandinavian denomination, so we cover nine states from Miami and Puerto Rico up to Raleigh-Durham, across to Louisville, and down to New Orleans. And in all that area, all those nine states, we have approximately, nah, between churches and church plants, approximately 100. And uh, that's what I used to do when I went around and had regional pastor meetings. Well, we have three in Alabama. (laughs) Ron is one of the top three. Is that? uh... (laughs) And Jonathan wanted, we wanted to be able to have us hear from our brothers and sisters. Uh, Ron planted a church in Anniston in uh, 2010, and it was called the Living Church. He and his wife, Fran, who is a school counselor, uh, have been doing that faithfully. And just what, what's it been, a few months ago? A few months, about three months, two months ago. Two or three months ago, they merged with another church to strengthen each other, and they're now with the Unity Gospel Church, located in Anniston. Yes, yes, sir. So this is Ron Haygood. I'm going to pray for him as he brings the word from uh, the Lord to us today. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to hear from our brother. I pray, Father, that you will truly anoint him, allow him to bring your word to us through the power of your spirit. Speak to our hearts, not just our minds. Speak to all of us, and may we be obedient to what we hear. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. For those who uh, have short memories, my name is Ron Haygood. Um, I'm glad to be here today. I appreciate Jonathan for trusting me to share the gospel with you all. I've been married to my wife since 1998. Uh, December, it'll be 20 years. And we praise the Lord for his uh, grace in being with us and and her putting up with me for as long as she has. Uh, My wife and I met in a library. Um, yes, we're both nerds, uh, but we met in the library in college, and I still remember the clothes that she had on when I first laid eyes on her, uh, still do, but uh, we thank the Lord for her and for my boys coming down uh, with us and for the Lord's traveling uh, mercies. I became a Christian in 1991, uh, May 12th to be exact, it was Mother's Day, and that wasn't by choice, it was by the Lord's doing, and uh, I thank the Lord for saving me from my sins, because I was the chief of sinners. Um, Let's go into the Word again, Colossians 1, verses 19 through 23. I'm going to read it again for your hearing, and ask the Lord to bless his Word and uh, pray for his help. Man, Colossians 1, beginning at verse 19, reads as follows. It says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, 
who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let us pray. Father, we come to you as your people gathered as one before you. With all our weaknesses and failings and needs, we know that we need you. We need the grace that comes to us through redemption that is found in Christ Jesus. We need to hear your gospel afresh. We need the washing of the renewal of the Holy Spirit through the word. We need your illumination because our eyes are often dull and darkened. Lord, we don't understand all the time your word. We struggle, and so we ask now that you would teach us by your spirit through your word. We ask that you would move us, that you would bring to light the greatness of who you are, our neediness, and that you would stir up faith that we might look to you and you alone. I pray, Father, that you would remove from us pride and any thought that will hinder the reception of your word as it is in truth in the word of God. I ask, Lord, that in all of us now as your people, we will receive your word with hunger and thirst and gratefulness. So, Lord, feed us through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Matthew Henry said that Christ is the mediator of reconciliation, who brings peace as well as pardon for sinners who brings them into the state of friendship and favor at the present time and will bring all holy creatures, angels as well as men, into one glorious and blessed society at last. One of the messages of Christianity is one of reconciliation. But it's not often the reconciliation that we think of. The reconciliation that we all desperately need is to be reconciled unto God through Christ. This is the fundamental claim of the gospel, because since the fall of man in Genesis 3, all of creation fell into chaos. All of creation fell into disunity. All of creation fell into a senseless chasm of division between man and God. And the only way that this dissonance can be reconciled is through Jesus Christ. And it is a blessed privilege for the believer to be reconciled unto God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We were once enemies and aliens of his wondrous grace and his saving power. But God, through his son, Jesus Christ, reconciled us unto himself to present us holy and blameless before him. And with that reconciliation is the reality that we are to persevere in the faith and remain steadfast in the very gospel that saved us. And that is the big idea of the passage that is before us this morning. And I want to answer four questions in my uh, principles. And the first one is, who is the agent of our reconciliation? And the second question is, what was man's estate before receiving Christ? 
The third principle is how can man be reconciled to God? And the fourth question is what does reconciliation do for the Christian? So those will be my principles today. So looking at the first principle, who is the agent of our reconciliation? If you look at verses 19 and 20, we will see that question being answered. Paul says, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So who is the agent of our reconciliation? Paul says here that in Christ, all the fullness of deity should dwell. And that all the divine power and attributes are found in Christ. And they are not shared with creation. Therefore, Christ himself is sufficient as deity. By Christ, all things are reconciled to the Father, things in heaven and things on earth. All believers will be reconciled along with all of creation. Paul said in Romans 8 and 21 that creation was subject to futility itself. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, not only did man fall into sin, but all of creation was corrupted by the fall of man. Paul says in uh, Romans 8 and 21 that creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So all believers along with creation will be reconciled. Thus all of humanity will submit to Christ, but not all will believe. Because Paul said himself in Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. That means the knees of the saved and the knees, knees rather, of the unsaved. The knees of those who are regenerated, who've been saved by God through the Holy Spirit, and those who have rejected the gospel. Every knee will be subject to Christ as Lord. But the glorious thing about Christ is that being reconciled to him gives us peace with God. You all may know people that say that they are trying to make their peace with God. We know unbelievers in our families, in our workplaces, in our college classrooms, in our high school classrooms. Wherever we go, we hear people saying that they want to make their peace with God or they're trying to make their peace with God. And the way that they're trying to do it is through good works. They're trying to do things to assuage their conscience, their, their guilty conscience. So they, they think that by doing good to other people, by obeying the the golden rule by doing unto others as they would have them do unto them or, or just by being nice to a person or, or being what we would call a good Samaritan, that they will somehow make their peace with God. But looking at this passage here, says differently, that it is having peace through the blood of the cross that reconciles us to God. In my past uh, early life as a Christian, I was part of a theological system that was uh, legalistic, that you had to do things in order to be saved, that you had to do works 
in order to be saved, that you, in order to be saved, you had to speak in tongues as the Spirit of God gave utterance. You know, Acts 2 and 38. Our denomination hinged on one verse in the Bible. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will be filled with the Holy Ghost. And to them, the Holy Ghost meant speaking in tongues as the Spirit of God gave utterance. And if you didn't speak in tongues, you were not saved. I didn't know anything about being reconciled to God through Christ. I thought that my reconciliation was in the fact that I could speak in tongues or, or that I didn't grow a beard because men could not grow beards or, or the women had to, to wear dresses uh, to prove that they were holy and couldn't wear makeup and couldn't wear lipstick and couldn't wear any, any type of jewelry except for a wedding ring. And we thought by doing all those things that we would be right with God. It was such a burden to be in that type of system. But even if you're not in that type of system, we can still think that we have to do something to earn our peace with God. But it is only found through the blood of Christ. And at that time, I didn't know that I had already been reconciled to God through Christ when he saved me. I thought that I was responsible for my salvation. I thought that I was responsible for maintaining peace with God so that God would not be angry at me. I saw God as an angry God. I had to make sure that I stayed saved. That's the phrase we should use. I got to make sure that I'm saved. Make sure that I stay saved. And the moment that I sinned, I beat myself up. I felt guilty. I was condemned. I thought that I wasn't saved. Why? Because I didn't know that that blood on that cross, that salvation that Christ granted to me, made me right with God. Not because of anything that I did. Not because of the theological system that I was in, but surely by the grace of God. The agent of my reconciliation, the agent of our reconciliation, friends, is not us. It is not our church. It is not our theology. By God's grace, I'm reformed now. But even reformed doctrine is not the basis of my reconciliation. It is purely by God reconciling us to himself through Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul is saying to the Colossians here. By him to reconcile all things to himself by him. So God himself through Christ is our agent. The second principle to consider here is what was man's estate before receiving Christ? Look at verse 21. He says, and you. He was writing to the saints at Colossae. If you're a Christian here this morning, you are a saint. He is talking to you and me. He says, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by Wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless 
and above reproach. So, what was our estate before receiving Christ? Our past. We were alienated. We were cut off. We were estranged from God. That's what the word alienated means. You, you were estranged. You were cut off. You were hostile toward God. I didn't think that when I wasn't a Christian that I was hostile toward God. I thought that I was just enjoying life. But before Christ, we were hostile toward God. We wanted nothing to do with God. We were enemies of God. We were aliens. We were strangers to God. We were enemies in our minds. Our attitudes, our thoughts, and our intentions were evil and hostile toward God. This is what Jesus said in John 3, verses 19 through 20. He says, and this is the condemnation to those who do not believe. That light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. That is the state of believers before we receive Christ. We wanted nothing to do with the light of the gospel. We wanted nothing to do with the light of God. We were out there living life to the fullest. We thought that living in sin was fun. That it was the good life. Not realizing that we were aliens to God. Every unbeliever before receiving Christ is an alien to God. Is at hostility with God. You even hear unbelievers say, I talk to God every day. Me and God have a relationship. You do have a relationship with God if you're an unbeliever. But it is a relationship of hostility. It is a relationship of animosity. It is a relationship of rebellion against God and his hatred towards your sin and your rebellion. But they say, I talk to God every day. But they're still at hostility with God. So Paul was reminding the Colossians that they were enemies. They were aliens. They were cut off from God himself. And this is what unbelievers need to know when we evangelize them. Lovingly so. That they are cut off from God. That they are aliens to God. Even their good works are tainted with the sin of an unregenerate heart. Even the good that they do do is by common grace. All the good works that unbelievers do are tainted with sin because they have an unregenerate heart. And that is the estate of every person 
who is an unbeliever. And Paul said, as much. You were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now he has reconciled. Which leads to our third principle. Now that we know how man was before he was reconciled, how can one be reconciled to God? This is the present reality. We look at verse 21 again and verse 22. He says, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless. Note the parallels between Paul says you were once and now. You were alienated and now you're reconciled. We are reconciled to God by way of the cross. Christ's substitutionary death for all who believe made reconciliation possible. Christ took the guilt of our sins and put them on himself as our substitute. He died the death that we could not possibly die. He bore the sins that we could not bear ourselves. He bore our punishment for breaking God's holy law and commandments. Can we bear the weight of our own sins? No. Many times when we ponder our sins, it keeps us up at night, right? It gives us sleepless nights and daydreamy days when we sit and ponder our own sinfulness. It sends some people into depression. It sends others into anxieties. It sends some into fits of anger, fits of retaliation, because they don't know how to deal with their sins. But saints, Christ has already dealt with our sins. He has reconciled us to God through the cross. He has done that. He has done that. If there was no cross, there would be no way for us to be reconciled to God. We would still be in our sins. We would still have that guilt and that condemnation of sin on us if Christ did not go to the cross for us. So with that reality in mind, what does reconciliation do for the Christian? The end of verse 22 says so. And this is such a glorious reality for us as believers. To present us holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. First of all, this is our future reality. Let's break those words down. He will present us, number one, holy. This is a positional holiness. This is being separate unto God. This is where we get the word saint and sanctified from. I'm going to tell you all a quick little thing here. The kind of church that my wife and I was part of was called a holiness church or 
sanctified church. That's what we used to call ourselves. Some of y'all, that may be foreign to some of y'all, but there's a sect of Christianity. Uh, it's just part of Pentecostalism, and it's called holiness churches. And how do we, how do we distinguish ourselves from other Christians? As I uh, referred to earlier, uh, all the women wore uh, dresses, and they had to be long dresses, uh, not above the knee dresses, by the way. Uh, they had to go down almost uh, floor sweepers, as we used to call them. The longer the dress, the more holy you looked. <laughs> okay? No, uh, no tank tops, no, no shoulders showing, no low-cut shirts. The women couldn't wear any uh, jewelry. God forbid if it was gaudy and just too much of it. Couldn't cut the hair, couldn't wear makeup, no lipstick of any kind. You would look like the spirit of Jezebel. <laughs> that was called holy. The men, we couldn't wear shorts showing our legs. Even when it's 100 degrees outside, we couldn't have facial like beards. Uh, the only jewelry that we could wear was a, a wedding ring. Very strict and legalistic. But we called ourselves holy and separate. And we were separate because people looked at us like we were crazy. <laughs> okay. But that is not the kind of holiness that Paul is talking about. We call ourselves saints. In every sense of the word, we were saints. But this is not the kind of sainthood that Paul is talking about. When he says God will present us holy, he's talking about a positional holiness, a reality that we are separate unto God. We won't live a perfectly holy life on this earth, but that doesn't change the fact that we have been made holy by God. John MacArthur said this, as a result of the believer's union with Christ in his death and resurrection, God considers Christian as holy as his son. That is not something that we do in ourselves. That is something that God would do when he presents us as a holy bride. And next he said he will present us blameless. Blameless means without blemish, without blame, without accusation, not under the condemnation of our sins. That is a present reality. Romans 8 and 1 says, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But when he presents us as blameless, we won't have any blame or accusation on us at all, period. No one will be able to accuse us. And then he said, without or above reproach, no one can lay a charge Against us. Paul said in Romans 8 and 33, who can lay a charge to God's elect? That's a rhetorical question. No one can. So that is an already reality, and it's a not yet reality. So he's going to present us holy, blameless, and without reproach. In other words, we will be presented to Christ as his chaste bride. And this reality Paul talks about in Ephesians 5 when he talks in the context of marriage. 
5 and 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify. That's being a saint that's being made holy. And cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her, the church, the regenerate, to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. That is the church. That is those who are regenerated. That is those who are the saints, the called according to God's purpose. That will be a glorious day when we will be presented as the holy and blameless and spotless bride before Christ. And who can do all of that? Certainly we can't. Friends, we can't live a life perfect enough. Even the thought of living a perfect life is sinful in and of itself. Because it's not possible. We strive for it, yes. We strive to live that life. But we know in ourselves. I was around some friends when I was in college who were on this whole perfection thing. And I thought that I could be that way. It's some hard work. I'll just tell you that. It is hard to try to live a perfect life. It's hard. Anybody ever tried? You get saved, you become a Christian, you don't want to sin at all, and that's good. But the first time you sin, it's like, oh man, the whole world is just crashing down on you. Why? Because it is God who does that work in us. We can't do it in ourselves. Just like in that church system I was in, we thought that we could. But you don't even have to be in that system to think that way. You can think that because you're a part of a better system that you are that way. But whatever side of the ditch you're in, you can't do it. It is only God who will present us holy, blameless, and without reproach. So what are some gospel implications of this? A couple of things. Number one, for gospel reminders, we need to remind ourselves of how we were before we were saved. Because before we were saved, guess what? We were unsaved. Amen? We did not reconcile ourselves. It was all of Christ. The problem, one of the big problems I have in contemporary evangelicalism is the Christian faith is presented sometimes as a sort of self-help technique designed to add some sense of importance to our lives. But that is a terrible caricature of faith in Christ. If you look at verses 15 through 20 in this passage, look at what we learn about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. All things were created through him and for him. He is the beginning. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We miss the point of the gospel to suggest that faith 
in Jesus is some way of finding our meaning and purpose in life. And yet when we turn Christianity into something that is all about us and my meaning and my purpose, it would be a mistake to miss the fact, people, that there is nothing that gives meaning and purpose to life remotely comparable to faith in Christ. Nothing else but faith in Christ. And when we place our faith in Christ, that is the most profound meaning and purpose in life. But if we start with our need for meaning and purpose in life, and the gospel we preach is shaped to meet that need, we will become a caricature of the truth if we make it all about us. But if we start with Christ, who reconciled us to God, that itself will give us meaning and purpose in life. Another gospel implication is for evangelism. We need to remind unbelievers of their spiritual state before God. All of us know unbelievers who are good people, right? Who do good things. Who may be some of the most well-liked people in your family, in your workplace, in your school, the nice person at the cash register when you're checking out. They need to be reminded lovingly of their standing before God because many of them think that because they do good that somehow they're good with God. They think that. And we know that they think that because we hear them say that. Why do most people want to do good? Because they believe that if they do these good things, that they'll stand before God one day and as they say, he'll take their good actions more than their bad actions and he'll say, enter into the joy of the Lord. That's why they do that. They're self-deceived. I was one of the nicest people that you probably would have ever known in your life before I was a Christian. Out of the three children, I was the one who made all the right choices. But if I died before I came to Christ, he wasn't going to say to me, well done. He was going to say, depart from me into the everlasting fire. I never knew you. They need to be reminded. It is very important for us to see the reality of this condition. It is. How do you see those that we encounter every day who are as yet unconverted? How do you see them? How do I see them? So often they seem to be very comfortable with themselves. They seem to be living the good life for most of them. Very much at home in this world. A lot of them seem secure and happy. They got the 
And, and I'm not just talking about this group, but you know, you got the ones who have the nice big homes, you know, they go fishing every weekend. You know, they go on nice vacations. You see them on Facebook. They have the, the perfect pictures in the pasture. And they look like they just, man, I wish I had that life. Not always, but it seems like that. That they are living the good life. Isn't that, isn't that what the world says that's the good life is? Big house, you know, 12 bedrooms, six baths, house on the lake, especially down here in the south. You know, you got a boat, got a big truck, maybe a camper, a couple of dogs, you know, nice manicured lawn. And we look at them and say they are living the good life. Man, they must have got it made. But friends, they're unconverted. If they died at that moment, they're going to stand before a holy and just God. We have to see that reality for those who are alienated from him. We have to see that they are lost. And they have to know that they're aliens. The totality of all things of every single person must be seen in their relation to Christ. Above all things, what is their relationship to Christ? We must learn to see unbelievers as they are and evangelize from that point. Amen. Two applications. How are we to live as reconciled man? Verse 23. I'll read it right quick. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister to Applications from that. Number one, persevere in the faith. God saves us. God reconciles us. You have God's sovereignty and salvation, but you have human responsibility. We have to persevere in the faith. He says, if you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast. That is the human responsibility part. Those who have been reconciled to God through Christ will persevere in faith and obedience because they are made new creatures. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and 17, any man who is in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. And number two, remain on the solid foundation of Christ that is found in the gospel. Don't abandon the foundation of Christ and him alone. And Christ must be preached, and Christ must be evangelized, and Christ must be heard. Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 3 and 11, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. As saints, we have to remain on that solid foundation. Reminds me of, reminds me of the hymn, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. So, saints, nothing comes close to the importance and significance of this gospel. Persevere in it. Do not allow some other way of seeing life and the world to turn you from it. Do not move from the hope that this gospel has given you. 
This hope that the gospel has given us is the hope of all creation. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these people. Father, thank you for the work that Christ has done on the cross to reconcile us to you. Lord, I pray that this message sinks into all of our hearts and that we ponder the truths thereof. And Lord, I pray that you continue to do your saving work in this world, using us as your agents to share the gospel. And Lord, that you continue to do your sanctifying work in all believers for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.